0: Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2, over the last several weeks, we've been looking at various psalms. This morning, we want to look at Psalm chapter 2, and I want us to begin, as we think about this, I want to, as you're turning there, I want us to think about some background information to the psalms. Psalms 1 and 2 stand together, as many commentators and scholars have said, like gatekeepers to all the other psalms. Psalms 1 and 2 are like gatekeepers to all the other psalms. The compilers of the psalms strategically place these two psalms at the beginning. And they share, if you're making notes, you may want to write a few of these things down, at the very beginning, they they share several things and semblance together. The first thing they share together is the word blessed. As you see in Psalm chapter 1, we see blessed is the man. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. And so we see the word blessed used at the very outset of Psalm 1, and we see blessed used at the end of chapter 2, where the psalmist says, blessed are all those who take refuge in him. And so this puts them, these two psalms, in literary unity together. The second is the Psalms introduce to us two kinds of meditation. Psalm 1 mentions, in verse 2, he says, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's murmuring and thinking about saying the word to himself, is what the psalmist is saying. And then in Psalm 2, we are told at the outset, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain, I want to point something out to you, is that the word plot here is actually the word meditate. It's the same word that's used in Psalm 1. And so in Psalm 1, you have one who is meditating on the law of God, delighting in the law of God, and then in Psalm 2, we have the nations raging and meditating upon something, and we'll talk about what that something is in just a moment. And then third is the contrast that's given between the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. We see in Psalm 1 verse 6, we see the psalmist says, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And then in chapter 2, 11 through 12, we see, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. You perish in the way. We have the the contrast between the way of the righteous and the way of of the wicked. So I wanted to give that to you this morning, as we begin to note that this is the gateway into all the other psalms. And so this morning we will look at Psalm chapter or Psalm two, um, and we will look through those twelve verses before us. But before we do, let's pray. Father, we come to you now, and Lord, we just simply pray. Would you open our eyes so that we can see and behold, as Psalm one nineteen eighteen says the wonderful things that you have in your law. And so, God, would you also, as we pray the psalmist's prayer, would you incline our hearts, Lord, to you, to your ways, to your truth today. And, God, I pray that you would clear our minds from any muddiness, from worldliness or unwholesome desires, and that, God, our desire for the next 30, 40 minutes would be to know you the living God, the one true God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you would, look at Psalm 2. The psalmist says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointing, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling, kiss the Son, you see these imperatives that the psalmist is giving us, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in And so this morning, I want to just follow a very simple outline, a very simple structure, because as we look at Psalm 2, we see four different scenes. We see see four different speakers. We see four different voices, and that's how we're going to kind of work through uh, this this morning. So in verses 1 through 3, we see one scene, and it's taking place on earth, and what we see there is the voices of the nations, and you can hear... The voices of the nations, they're crying out, they're rebelling against God, they're jeering against God, and their rebellious nature. And then in verses 4 through 6, the scene changes, and it goes, and the spotlight from there turns upon God the Father. And we have His response to uh, the rebellion that's going on on earth. And then the third voice, or the third scene we see here, is the voice of God's anointed. God's appointed king, and Zion speaks. And then lastly, we see in verses 10 through 12, we see the voice of the psalmist. It's the voice of the psalmist. He sounds much like a preacher who is summons, summonsing the rebellious kings and the rulers and the nations to submit themselves To God's anointed. Does that make sense to you? It's a very easy outline here. It's already done for us, so I just put words to it. And so that's the way we will follow the text this morning. So let's begin. With the voices of the raging nations, in verses 1 through 3, as we read, why did the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? In the opening lines, David, and we're told David is the author of this psalm from what Luke records in Acts chapter 4, David is noticing something going on on earth. He notices how humanity, particularly the nations, are in tumult, and they're plotting their discontent. David notices this. A plot has been hatched. You remember the word plot, as I mentioned to you just a moment ago. It's the same word for meditate as in Psalm 1. So the kings and the rulers of the earth are meditating on how to overthrow the triune God. That's what they're meditating on. But what is their end game? What's the end game of the nations? I want you to see this. In verse 3, we are told what their end game is. He says, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So the end game is to throw off the shackles of God's rule and God's law. That's the end game of the nations. Look at their words in verse 3. They use words like bonds and cords. These are accusatory words towards God. They're suggesting that God is harsh and unfair and restrictive, that His law is bondage to them, and we have got to come together and meditate and figure out how to get rid of God, His rule, and His word. Does that make sense to you? The nations are raging. Notice what we can determine about this rebellion that's going on on earth where we live, where we dwell. In verse 1, we should note that it's premeditated what they're doing. It's premeditated. These are people who are plotting. In other words, they're, they're getting together and they're saying, here is what we plan to do. It's premeditated. It's also collective. It's collective. They stand together. They take counsel together. And hear me this morning, though though there are clear differences among the nations such as culture, language, economics, government, religious traditions, they are united on something. They are all in agreement that they must overthrow the shackles of God's rule and God's word. Isn't that amazing? They're united together, common enemies. For all the nations is God, His rule, His word. In verse 2, we are told of their revolt, that they set themselves, they're taking a stand together against God. And we are told they are raging against Him. I think it must be noted here that unregenerate men and women, those who are lost, those who are unbelieving, they naturally hate God and hate His law. They hate God and they hate His law. They despise the idea of submitting to God and His Word. We see that all around us every day, don't we? They despise God. They despise his word, And they will not submit to it. So the world in rebellion does not want God, His holy word, or His sovereignty. They want self-autonomy. We want to determine what's right, what's true, and what's beautiful. We want to do that. Because think about it, all that God has deemed to be true and deemed to be right and and deemed to be beautiful, the world is raging against it. That's where you could probably say, amen. We feel it every day, don't we? The world raging against God, raging against His Word, Raging against His provisions. I mean, you think about it. I mean, broadly speaking, all sin corrupts what God has said to be true and right and beautiful. All sin. But You think about some specifics. Think about in our own culture and other cultures around the world, how nations and countries and cultures are seeking to redefine the biblical institution of marriage. Think about it. Nations, cultures, raging against what God has said is beautiful, true, and right. Or you think about this, about those who seek to destroy, and listen to the wording of this, the image of God in the womb. Abortion. Seeking to destroy it. Today, in our modern time, we have so much confusion even over gender. Where there are people who would say, I was born a man, but I'm actually a woman, and begin making a transition to something else, discontent with the way God has created them. Raging against what's true. Raging against what's right. Raging against what's beautiful. Does that make sense to you? Another way we see this is by practical atheism being lived out. We live our lives as if God doesn't exist. In his book, The Existence and Attributes of God, Stephen Charnock makes the following observation in his chapter called Practical Atheism. He says, The descriptions of the nations of the world lying in the ruins of Adam's fall and the dregs of that revolt is that they know not God. They forget God as if there was no such being above them. And indeed, he that doth the works of the devil owns the devil to be more worthy of observance and consequently of a being than God, whose nature he forgets and whose presence he abhors. He goes on to say in this chapter, he says, Men leap out of their beds to their carnal pleasures or worldly employments without any thought of their creator and preserver or any reflection upon his will as the rule of our daily obedience. Practical atheism. Living as if God does not exist. Does that happen around us? Is that happening in our culture? Absolutely, it is. So look at the question. Psalmist says voices of the nations, why are they raging? Why are they raging? Because they would want to do nothing more than to get their hands on God and destroy Him. That's why they're raging. And you say, oh no, that's not true. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said in one of his sermons. He says, we have in these verses a description of the hatred of human nature against the Christ of God, In determined malice, they arrayed themselves in opposition against God. It was not a temporary rage, but a deep-seated hate, for they set themselves resolutely to withdraw the Prince of Peace. They hate him, and they hate his Son. We have an example of this in the New Testament. When Jesus was born, mind you, it's God taking on flesh What is one of the first things that we see in Scripture that happens? A king, Herod, attempts to kill him. It was an opportunity there to lay their hands on God from heaven and destroy him. And that is what Herod sought to do. As Matthew records for us, he says, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, here it is, for Herod is about to search for the child. And here's what Herod wants to do to the child. He wants to destroy him. First thing. First thing we see of Christ, the God man on earth, that happens to him as a king seeks to destroy him. Or consider what Luke records in Acts chapter 4, 24 through 28. It's interesting what Luke does here in Acts chapter 4, 24 through 28, because this passage, Psalm 2, is actually used in this section of Acts. And it's applied in this way. Luke says, the, Israel, the people of Israel and the Gentiles and the kings and the rulers, they've all come together. And guess what they're trying to do? Destroy Christ. Listen to what he says. He says, And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Referring here to Psalm 2, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth have set themselves and rulers were gathered together against the Lord, against His anointed. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, listen to what he says, Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, and the peoples of Israel. They're coming together. They're fulfilling the very thing that Psalm 2 talks about. Gathering together to destroy. But listen to what Luke says. These people of Israel have gathered together to do whatever you, your hand, and your plan predestined to take place. When looking at this first scene, perhaps maybe it's a little depressing to you. When you think about the whole world being stirred up against God and against His Son, but take heart. Look at the key word in verse 1. In verse 1 he says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Do you see what he says? Their their strategies, their methods, everything they're doing, it's in vain, the psalmist says. It's in vain. So all that the kings and the rulers of the earth are doing is in vain. Their efforts, their thoughts, their strategies, their uniting together, it's all in vain. The plotting and the scheming is all in vain because they only assist God in His plan. That's good news. They only assist Him. They don't thwart Him. Now in the next section, as we look through Psalm 2 and verses 4 through 6, the scene changes. It goes from, as I told you at the outset, it goes from a scene of the earth, the scene of the earth where there's plotting and scheming and uniting together to unhinge from God and His Word. Now we go into the scene of heaven. We go into the very inner throne room of God in verses four through six, he says, He who sits in the heavens lasts and the Lord holds them in derision, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So, what is God's response to the rebellion? What is God's response to the plotting and the scheming and the uniting together against him? He is not disturbed in the slightest. He is not disturbed in the slightest. Notice what he says in verse 4. What is he doing? He sits. He's not bothered. He's not bothered by what's going on in the earth. He sits, and we're told in the text, he laughs. God laughing. This is not a reference to God's amusement of what's going on on the earth, or God's delight in what's taking place. It's rather a scoffing that expresses anger and contempt for what's going on on the earth. He's not panicked. The schemes of man are not shaking him. The plots of man are not taking him back. As one commentator said, he says, God is unimpressed. He's unimpressed. Then he goes on to say in his commentary, he says, if you have imbibed a western sentimental view of God as a great soupy softy in the sky, then you will not understand this picture of verse 4. In fact, you will likely be offended by it. So this is not a picture of that western sentimental view of God That's not what the text is giving us. No, what we have here is the affirmation that he is securely overseeing all the nations and the rebellious nature of man. The plotting and the scheming don't even come close to removing him from his rule of the earth or thwarting his counsel, his purposes. It's absurd, That the created would fight against the creator. That's what's funny. Isaiah gives us another glimpse into God's response to rebellion on earth. In Isaiah 40, 15 through 17 and 21 through 23, listen to what Isaiah records in his prophecy. He says, Behold the nations. Listen to how he describes them like a drop drop from a bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for burnt offerings. All the nations are as nothing before him. There is nothing. And he goes on to say, he says, Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is He who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Can it be any more clear? So verse 6... Concludes this scene of heaven by God providing a response to those who are rebelling on earth. God's response to this global rebellion is to crown his own king. We sang songs about it. What the kings of the earth sought to prevent, God has already done. This king is unlike all the other kings of the earth. This king is righteous. This king is just. This king is holy. And we're told in verse 5, that is terrifying to those who are on the earth. Terrifying to them. And so the scene changes as we move to verse 7 through 9, where we see this king speak, the voice of God's anointed. And 7 through 9, it says, I will tell the decree, The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And so the opening lines here, there's the mention of a decree. What is the decree? The decree is God's sovereign eternal, unchangeable plan. It is His eternal, unchangeable plan. It's in reference to His eternal will. It is the sovereign decree of the covenant between the triune God. Here, specifically, it's the covenant agreement of the Father and Son that the Son would be King. He would fulfill the office of king. And so here we get insight into the plan before the beginning of time. We get insight into the sovereign decree of God. You heard it read for us earlier in Isaiah 46, where we were reminded, called to mind, remember. I'm God, and there's none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done. Notice how God has done this. He has declared the end from what? The beginning. And guess what's going to happen? My counsel is going to happen. I will accomplish all my purpose. All my purpose. So what is the decree? In verse 7 we are told, we are told, you are my son, today I have begotten you. The writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 5, guys, I've got a thousand scripture references to go with. Psalm 2 is referenced so many times in the New Testament, but particularly here, Hebrews 1 5, the writer of Hebrews quotes from Psalm 2 and applies it to Jesus Christ in order to make the point that Jesus is The divine Son. He is the God-man. And we hear this at His baptism, His transfiguration, and in Acts 13 about His resurrection, that He is God. He is the God-man. So hear me this morning. What is God's response to rebellious man? Jesus is God's answer. He's the answer. Jesus is the Lord's anointed King, and He is not like any other King who has ever lived. This King is appointed by the Father. This King is God's only begotten Son. He is divine, and so He is able to perfectly accomplish the Father's plan. As We read in Isaiah 46, His will, His counsel shall stand, because the Son can perfectly uphold it. Does it make sense to you this morning? It's also important for us to note here that He's not appointed, hear me, by a vote of general consensus. The rulers of the earth are not consulted about this. No, he is appointed by the decree of God. He's appointed by the decree of God. And in verse 8, we're told of his jurisdiction. His jurisdiction is global. There's no place, there's no people group, there's no tribe, there's no language where his dominion is not absolute. He reigns over all. The same nations that were raging and plotting in verse 1 will be the possession not of a weak, ungodly king of the earth, but of the God and king from heaven. The ends of the earth belong to him. I think we have to ask a question. What will the son, what will the king do